Welcome to the Educators to Educators podcast, a place where educators come together to talk about the best online tools for classroom success. The world of education is changing quickly, and we want to help you stay ahead of the curve with the latest innovations and greatest technology so that you can build an effective and efficient classroom that leaves you time to focus on what matters most, your personal life. Now, let's meet our host, Carrie Conover. Carrie has spent 22 years in education. She spent 10 years in the classroom before becoming an EdTech corporate leader. She now helps educators connect to EdTech companies and EdTech companies connect with teachers. So grab your favorite flare pen or note-taking app and let's get learning. Hello, friends, and welcome back to another episode of the Educators to Educators podcast. It's Carrie here, and I know what is going on in your life right now. And that's probably a lot of new beginnings. Back to school for yourself, back to school for maybe your own family. It is a time of stress and also a lot of anticipation and hope for the future. Today, I am going to go back in my own personal history to one of my favorite companies. And one of the reasons it's one of my favorite companies is because I worked there for three years. I hold so many amazing memories of working at eSpark Learning. It was the first job I had after I left the classroom. And the one thing that I think about when I think about eSpark Learning is that eSpark listened to teachers and listened to students' voices and adapted their programs and their curriculum based on what they heard from people who are actually in the classroom. Today, I am joined by Eric Dahlberg, who is the CEO of eSpark Learning. Eric, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Carrie. Thanks so much for having me. Yes, this is going to be a fun episode. So we're going to start with you just telling us how you ended up at eSpark Learning as the CEO. Then we're going to talk about a very exciting update to eSpark, something that is new that you just launched. And then we're going to put you in the hot seat and have you answer some rapid fire questions. So I won't be too cruel in the rapid fire questions. I won't, you know, I won't dig in too much, but that is one of our listeners' favorite things is to hear that you are also a real human being. So shall we get started? Let's do it. Okay. Let's start off with your your general career story and how you ended up at eSpark. Yeah, you bet. Um I guess the real quick answer to how I ended up at eSpark, I've been at eSpark for about a year now. I think my one-year anniversary is coming up any day here. Um, and I arrived at eSpark because eSpark's longtime founder and CEO, David Minka, who it sounds like you worked with yeah. uh, quite a bit a few years ago, uh, decided to move on to a new venture. And so that set the board out looking for a new CEO. Um, I think they found me in large part because I had spent four years at a similar company called MobiMax that also makes uh, online you know, supplementary curriculum uh, and a very sort of bottoms up go-to-market model in the sense that really reaching out to teachers uh, you know, with a free product and connecting with teachers and trying to get that usage in the classroom. So I think that was the, the most literal answer and, and most direct in terms of a year ago. But my broader journey to ed tech has been a little bit longer. Um, I've been in the working world for, gosh, a couple of decades now, I guess, but um, not always in ed tech. I started my career fresh out of college in, a, in the financial services industry. I worked in an investment management company and a finance oh, wow. function. I did that for a few years while my, while my wife was going to medical school and 
After that, we moved back across the country uh, to the Seattle area where I am now, and I went to work for Microsoft. Um, I was at Microsoft for a little over 10 years in their online services business uh, before leaving for a smaller startup uh, here in the Seattle area in the legal industry. And I did that for a couple of years before Movimax found me. Um, but the important part is when I had a chance to uh, you know, get into education, that was a real sort of meaningful moment. I had spent, like I just said, my career in investment management and sort of online and advertising and in the legal industry. And I think my kids were reaching school age and I was at a point, you know, financially that was a little bit different and I had an opportunity to do something that was a little bit more meaningful. And so the chance to get into education without, you know, sort of boring you about my <laughs> um, you know, sort of political or social convictions and stuff like that, but the the opportunity to do something that felt a little bit more meaningful, um, you know, was important. And I'm here at EdTech because I think it has the chance to, uh, you know, provide a more quality education and democratize, you know, education, you know, through technology in a way that hasn't been possible in the past. In the past, and that was real attractive to me again, especially as my kids reached uh, sort of elementary education age. And so that's what that's what had me jump to the industry in the first place. Yeah, I, I've heard so many stories of people in their careers when their kids start going to school, their eyes are opened up to so much more. And so there's a lot of people that make that that career change um, or adjustment or pivot, however you want to say it. So thanks for doing that. Uh, you know, in, on behalf of a lot of educators out there, we appreciate that you chose this path. So let's talk a little bit about um, not the new part of eSpark, but what is eSpark's mission overall? And then we'll talk about the new announcement that just came out. Yeah, well, at a super high level, I mean, eSpark makes you know digital supplementary curriculum for reading and math for elementary school students. So that's the space that we live in. And, you know, if you go talk to a, a district administrator, you know, they'll tell you that they're using eSpark because they want to increase their kids' you know, literacy and math and reading, and they want to impact state test scores and stuff like that. And so, you know, that's definitely important to us. But if you talk to, you know, an eSparker internally, I think what you're more likely to hear is we want to get kids not just proficient at reading and math. We want kids to love reading and math. And there's a big difference, you know, as a former educator, yep. um, there's a big difference between those two, but that's really the goal. So in terms of a mission and vision statement, you know, we want to reimagine learning in a way that's, you know, student centric, a way that connects with kids, regardless of their circumstances or backgrounds. There's a bunch of flowery language, um, <laughs> but I would, I would simplify it and say, we want kids to love reading and to love math. If we're doing that, the rest of it will fall into place. When I was there, I saw a lot of that, right? I saw both. I saw... I mean, I could not wait for our data scientists to run numbers and see the actual data say this student has progressed or this classroom or this school. Um, so the data told that story. And then to layer on top the actual student engagement, you hear the stories of teachers who say, I couldn't get this kid to pick up a book. And now I can't get this person to put their device down because they're reading. And um, you've put so much thought and effort into uh, this next new product, Choice Text. And I was lucky enough to attend a webinar last week where I was actually you know, getting walked through that product. And I have to tell you, it brought back, brought back a childhood memory for me. Um, and so I was a um, raised by a single mom. I had two older brothers. 
And um, when I was younger in elementary school, I would say I didn't love, love, love to read. I remember liking going to the library at school, um, but I liked it. But there was one type of book that I always was trying to steal from my older brother. And it was his choose your own adventure books. I'm totally dating myself right now, but they were paperback books where you would go maybe like a quarter or halfway through the book, and then you would have to make a choice. And then you would skip ahead to, it would say, if you want this to happen in the book, go to 79. And if you want this to happen, go to page 99. And you got to kind of choose your own adventure. And I remember I would reread the book so I could choose the next, you know, the other adventure. Um, And so that just sparked back that memory for me. I also have to say I was a little envious that like, where was this when I was a kid? I think I would have loved reading more if I had this. So why don't we break this into three different segments? First, I would love for you to tell us what Choice Text is all about, then um, why you decided to build this as a company. And then finally, I'd love to talk a little bit about how you listen to teachers and students to make sure this product was uh, all it is today. So why don't we start off with what is this new product, Choice Text? Yeah, you bet. So very specifically, um, Choice Text is a It's a reading comprehension lesson. Um, It's reading comprehension lessons for both fiction and nonfiction. So reading literature and reading informational text. Um, And these reading reading comprehension uh, lessons work for, you know, throughout the sort of K to five reading curriculum. The unique thing about choice text is imagine your classic, you know, your, your sort of stereotypical reading comprehension lesson. What do you do? Well, you give the kiddo a reading passage and you have them read, read that reading passage and then you ask them a few questions to assess their comprehension of that passage. And oftentimes when they're you know, thinking about those questions, they have to go back and refer to the ta- text and really comprehend it. So that's the, that's the construct. And choice text is no different in the sense that we give them a reading passage and then we ask them questions about it. But the unique thing about choice text is they get to pick and indeed create the reading passage that the lesson is based off of. So imagine that old-fashioned reading comprehension lesson, you know, the poor um, curriculum designer or editor whose job it was to come up with a lesson and a reading passage that sort of worked for everybody or that theoretically targeted, you know, your average fourth grade student, if this is a fourth grade lesson. Um, you come with a reading passage that kind of seems interesting and appeals to a lot of different kids, but you know, how often are you getting something that applies to everybody? We wanted to kind of turn that on its head and say, hey, what if we talk a lot about student choice or agency at eSpark? We're trying to create a curriculum that is more, I mentioned this before, in this sort of mission vision that is more student-centered. We're big on student engagement. Um, what if the students could actually pick the reading passage that their lesson is then based off of. Would they be more interested? Would they be more engaged? Would they pay more attention? Would they be more excited to read that passage? Would they be more invested in sort of understanding it and answering questions about it? Um, We think so. Uh, And so that was the premise behind Choice Text. So yeah, quite literally, um, the very beginning of these new reading comprehension lessons is the student gets to go through a little exercise where they build the story, if we're talking about fiction or RL, they build the story or if we're talking about nonfiction, they go through and they pick from a, a list of hundreds of different stories on all sorts of interesting topics. And then the rest of the lesson is built around that story that they built or picked. It's interesting 
it's it's this is making me think of a family game we've been playing lately in my family. I have a 15 year old and an almost 13 year old. And um, it's like a 20 questions game, right? Where you can ask 20 yes or no questions. And the part of it that makes this interesting is the person whose turn it is picks the topic. So for instance, my son is like, okay, SEC schools or whatever, like colleges, um, there's sports related, you know, questions. Uh, if my husband had to pick, he probably picked either sports or some kind of historical event, right? Well, when it was my turn to pick the topic, I actually picked careers, which uh, probably doesn't surprise a lot of our listeners. But my point of talking about this is um, when we're doing this, by us picking the topic that we're most comfortable with, right? And then we can think of, okay, a career. And then the person asking questions is trying to narrow down what career. So the first one I think my son, uh, we did together was a lawyer. And he was asking questions, trying to figure out what this career was. And then when we switched to sports, I really wasn't, I love sports, but I really wasn't as excited as like the colleges. Cause I don't know who's in the SEC and the big, whatever it is now, 18. Uh, but my point is, is like, I do think that choice when you're learning or you're problem solving that's what makes me think of this game because we're really problem solving yes, no questions together, trying to figure out what this topic is, right? When it's something I like, I'm way more interested in playing the game. When my son's like, okay, we're going to do this or that. And I'm like, okay, I'm just playing it kind of like, all right, I'll do it. You know, but when it's a topic I care about, I'm a lot more into it. And that's what I think you're really tapping into here. So what does this look like as far as a te from a teacher's standpoint. So they're, let's say they're teaching cause and effect and that's their comprehension lesson. How many different, how does the teacher manage that the students are looking at so many different texts at this point? Yeah, well, so the, the first thing to know about eSpark is that, um, you know, we're a, a sort of a differentiated learning platform, um, a personalized learning platform. And really all that means is the specific sequence of lessons that the you know, students are assigned is you know, adaptive and it's differentiated based on their learning level. So in theory, the student is already sitting down in front of a reading comprehension lesson that is targeted to their learning level. This might be a fourth grade student, but that doesn't mean they're reading at a fourth grade level. They could be working on a third grade reading comprehension standard or a fifth grade reading comprehension standard, or they could be reading to your point, they could be working on um, a standard that the teacher is teaching in whole class instruction and has specifically assigned, but they're already working on a, a lesson that has been, you know, targeted to them. Now, once they're in that lesson, the question is, what is the content of the lesson? And that's what Choice Texts does uniquely. It personalizes the content of the lesson itself to the student's background and interests. So to your point, um, you know, your son could choose to, you know, write a story about I don't know, an SEC football player. And if you were doing the same lesson, you could you know, choose to write it about you know, careers and stuff like that. The student gets to do that in a one-to-one -one way with their lesson. Um, of course, when they're done, we will capture the story that the student wrote, the questions that they answered. Those are available to the teacher. If the teacher wants to come in and sort of see how they did and check up on them, we'll not only you know, have some reporting that says, you know, they demonstrated mastery of the subject, but they can choose to sort of click in and read the specific story or the, or the specific questions. We also have a feature where the students are asked at the end, would you like to share this story with your teacher? Ooh, now, I like it. Now, truth be told, 
all of the stories are available to the teacher. The student doesn't have to elect to share it. She's got, she or he has, has visibility to all of them. Yeah. But we're often finding that students are getting to the end of this lesson and they've developed this attachment to the story. Remember, they've, they've built it. They've specified every aspect of the story. It's something they don't want to lose. Um, they want their teacher to see it. They want to take it home to their parent. They want a classmate to see it. They might want to build on that story next time in the next lesson. And so we're building in some features where the student can elect to share that with the teacher, um, which will then preserve it uh, eventually as part of a classroom library and stuff like that. So the teacher will have have some uh, some evidence there. But yeah, the story gets created on the spot. The questions get created on the spot. Um, you know, if you're thinking about how that happens, it's probably not a huge surprise to hear that we're using generative uh, artificial intelligence to do that, um, to craft those stories around the student's background and interest on the fly. Literally, no two of these stories, um, you know, are the same. So it's a it's a neat technical trick, but that's not the important part. The important part is we're doing that in service of student choice and giving them a level of agency that they don't often have in the elementary school, you know, curriculum. Um, and that's, uh, you know, producing a level of you know, sort of engagement and investment um, you know, in the material. And again, going back to where I started earlier, like a love of reading. Um, reading's a tough cognitive thing for, you know, kids to, kids to do. And, you know, when I talk to kids, including my own kids, and, you know, they tell me they don't like reading. Usually what they mean is, I don't like reading that thing that you're asking me to read, or I don't like reading this thing that I was assigned. Um, but it doesn't mean they don't like reading at all. Oftentimes it just means they haven't found the right thing to read yet. Right. So you can think of choice text as connecting them in a very direct way to the right thing, because it's the thing that they've identified, is the thing that they've specified. Um, so that's what we're doing there. Like it. and. One thing that stood out to me in the webinar is you were talking about using AI in a very safe, responsible way. And I also liked how you were talking about the teacher feedback. So can you talk a little bit about how you made sure before you took this product to students, how you listened and also made sure that it was safe? Yeah, well, these definitely overlap because as soon as as soon as you start, um, you know, using AI, um, you're you're opening up a can of worms. And we began development on this project, you know, much earlier in 2023 when AI was still relatively new, and you know, when certainly the news cycle around AI and AI in education was predominantly a negative one, right? Most of mm -hmm. what you were reading was about hey, how AI was disrupting this or disrupting that. Yeah, it was something that you know teachers were much more likely to be kind of on the defensive about <laughs> trying to figure out how they prevented it from sort of disrupting this classroom practice that, you know, they didn't really want to be disrupted. Um, and so that was a, a theme from early on. We knew that we needed this technology in order to enable that level of student choice. But the question was, how do we bring it into the classroom, you know, in a way that is safe, in a way that is free from some of the um, sort of pitfalls that, that AI is prone to? Um, and then ultimately, uh, you know, we need to go talk to teachers about that and getting that right, but also in, you know, sort of marketing it and, and getting it out there. And so that was a big part of our, our process. There were a few areas with the AI that we heard from teachers and sort of identified early on that we needed to you know, solve for. One is um, we've all unfortunately, you know, sort of read about people being able to coax AI into, um, uh, some inappropriate points of view, I'll just say, in the past. In the past, and so whether that is 
Um, well, I don't need to cite examples. You, you can imagine. <laughs> and so obviously, yeah. if we're talking about you know, putting AI tools in the hands of students to let them create a reading passage, we needed to be confident that the reading passage that the AI produced was um, appropriate, uh, not just instructionally relevant, but, but truly appropriate. Um, for an elementary school audience. And so we've got multiple layers of uh, sort of safety and moderation built into that. Some of that comes in the user experience itself in terms of the inputs that we allow the student to provide. But every time a student allows, uh, or excuse me, provides an input, we're actually sending that off to a moderation service to check it against a long list of criteria to make sure that that's appropriate. Even once all the inputs for the story have been sort of scrubbed and certified as appropriate, uh, once the AI starts writing the actual article based on those those inputs, we're sending the output of the article off to a moderation engine that is reviewing the, the output itself. Um, so we've got multiple layers there. Part of what I talked about too was just uh, making sure that teachers had visibility to all of this stuff. Um, mm -hmm. You know, that, that level of sort of sunlight on it or transparency there is an important layer in and of itself. And so that was uh, that was a big one. And of course, there's another layer of this. Even if you're producing a safe, you know, reading passage, you still need to make sure that the reading comprehension questions are high quality, the answers they're providing are high quality, the uh, sort of remediation you give for a, a, a wrong answer is high quality. Like the instructional value needs to be there too. This isn't just a cheap party trick we're trying to do. We're actually trying right. to get kids to, you know, learn to read. And so that was a big piece of it too. And our process, process all spring was doing uh, sort of interviews with teachers where, you know, we walked them through it, uh, you know, had them do it as a student. We did this with students as well, got their feedback, and that became basically homework for us to go back and solve. And so we'd go work on that problem and come back and do it again until we got to a point where teachers said, heck, yeah, this is something I'm excited about using. Regardless of how I felt about AI coming into this conversation, I look at this product. And I don't see AI, I see something that is, you know, instructionally very relevant for what I'm trying to teach. And I also see something that I know my kids are going to love. Um, that was the end goal. And we just kept at it until that was the response we got. Love it. Speaking of cheap party tricks, I just used AI to write an entire scavenger hunt for my daughter's 13th birthday. It was awesome. <laughs> Good experience. I was like, Good. Oh yeah. I mean, I use AI quite a bit in my business. Um, and it's, it's interesting when people ask me about it because it'll get me to a B level and then my, I have to take it to an A plus, right? Like the scavenger hunt, I would say, okay, the next stop is this, write a little rhyming poem to get them there. It would spit something out. I may have it rewrite it. And then I have to go in and of course, perfect it. Um, and that's one of the things I tell people, a lot of teachers will ask me, aren't you nervous about plagiarism? I'm like, I think it can get kids so far, but you're, you're a teacher. You've been trained all these years to spot, you know, what a kid can write at this level, you know, your kids. So now I'm going off on an AI tangent, but I do think it's getting a lot of like in the beginning, especially negativity around using it in schools. And, um, me personally, I think, I think it's going to be a great tool for kids. I could just go, I think it's a great tool and I'm glad you guys are jumping on it and using it for an, in a positive, safe way. Well, two things. Number one, I just love it that you do a scavenger hunt. That has been one of my favorite sort of kids activities. It's, it's birthday season in my kid's household, all about the scavenger hunt. So that's awesome. I think you and I are kindred spirits in that, in that sense, but two, it, it's a very, it's a great example. I've been asked by a lot of teachers 
you know, beyond choice text, they're excited to go use choice text, but, you know, they'll ask, like, how else should I be using AI in the classroom? And, you know, honestly, I'm not sure. Yes, I would love for you to go sign up for choice text and give it a try, but I don't know what that means for you and your classroom in that exact environment. And my advice is usually don't worry right now about AI in your classroom. Go use AI in your personal life. You know, go use it to help you out with an with with a scavenger hunt like you just mentioned, or to summarize something you don't want to read, or to write a first draft of something that you're not particularly excited about writing about. Use it when you you know use it for all those scenarios when you would have Googled something in the past. Um, use it in your personal life, and as you get more familiar with it, um, you'll light bulbs will start going off about oh here's what I can do with my kids. Yeah. Um, so just focus on getting familiar with it and use it to help you. And you'll be amazed at sort of you know, the applications that you might find for your for your classroom. Well, and as a teacher, start using it to make you more efficient, right? Like teachers are burning out. Teachers are tired. I mean, the list goes on and on. Use it to make yourself more efficient. So let me just give this example on the scavenger hunt. I'm a busy working mom. I wanted to make this scavenger hunt so fun for these kids. But if I had sat and like written out, there's like 13 or 15 stops in this. If I had to sit and write a poem for each of those, I probably would have spent like two hours of time. I would have got sucked down a rabbit hole. I have other things that need my customization and my brain. For instance, this AI can't do this. AI can't prep me for this podcast, right? So let me just read you the first hint, okay, that AI wrote for me. I said something like, write me, write, I'm doing a scavenger hunt for my daughter's 13th birthday, write the clue to go to this child's house. And I just, just put in a couple things about the child and this is what it wrote. Let's go on a scavenger hunt. It's time to play. Follow the clues that rhyme and lead the way. Our first stop is a place of knowledge and wit where adventure awaits. Let's not quit. Think of a boy with fiery red hair. His house is the first stop. So go if you dare. Like AI wrote that for me. <laughs> I love the fact that it was a rhyming poem on top of the fact that it was a, 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 like a good clue. That was, that's amazing. Yeah. And, and I love it that you bring this up because so much of the conversation um, in late 2022 after the launch of ChatGPT and early 2023 was about ways that students were going to use to, you know, sort of cheat or gain some advantage or again, disrupt some teaching practices that teachers didn't really want to have disrupted. Yeah. And it was a shame to me that there wasn't more conversation about how can teachers use this to quote, yes. I get air quotes around cheat, right? It's not really cheating, but yeah. how can teachers put this to work for themselves? We're so focused on how students might use it. Why can't teachers be using it as a you know superpower to make them you know more efficient and to free up that, you know, whether it's brain power or time or whatever for things yes. that are more meaningful for them. I love it. That's that's just getting on the front foot and putting this to work for you. As simple as writing thank you notes after the holidays, you get all these gifts, or maybe you get a class gift, whatever. You can literally go to AI and say, my name is Mrs. Conover. My class gave me AirPods for the holidays as a gift. Write 25 unique thank you notes to each student. And you can put in the list of your students' first names and AI will spit out thank you notes for you. I mean, that's what I'm talking about. The stuff that you don't that feel like bog you down. So then you can sit and read the personal essays and, or sit on one-on-one -on -one sessions with your students, right? Like get all that other stuff off your plate by using AI. And then the stuff where you really need to be there 
personally, grading that essay or giving feedback on a math test in detail, you're going to have more time. So don't be scared of it. <laughs> I love okay. it. I love what you all are doing. I am going to keep, uh, include a link in the podcast show notes. So if you're driving or you're listening to this while you're doing laundry, please just make sure you go down, click on the link. I'm going to show you how you can go get a free trial as a teacher to use eSpark and dig into this. And especially if you are a little bit of nervous about AI, this is a great place to start. Just yourself, use it for yourself, your kids. And then as you get more comfortable, take it into your classroom. So I just want to make sure you all know you can try this for free in your classroom. Anything to add to that, Eric, before we send you off to your rapid fire questions? Uh, no, it's almost like you used to work at eSpark. My, my marketing <laughs> team will be you know, thrilled that you mentioned that you, teachers can try eSpark for free this fall in their classroom. Yes. <laughs> All right. I do miss eSpark some days. I think, oh man, that was a really good long three years, but then it went so fast at the same time. See, I was there when we were really building and really starting like the big implementations. So it was truly a startup and, and I learned a lot. I would not be here today without that. Well, I tell you what, we are we are we are getting back into that mode because eSpark as a company is, you know, 10 or 12 years old and we've built out this again, this, you know, digital supplementary curriculum for math and reading K through 5 and you know, that curriculum is differentiated in the sense that the sort of sequence of the lessons provided each student is on target for their learning level, you know, yada yada yada. That is the core product that we've got today. But what we see is our potential over the next few years, and Choice Text is just the first installment towards this vision. We want to remake that entire curriculum in a way that the content in each of those lessons is now customized or personalized to the student's individual background or interests. Again, Choice Text is a perfect example of that for reading comprehension very specifically. But we're working on something similar for math, and we're not going to rest until the entire curriculum is remade in a, we call it, playfully personalized way Ooh, so that the students okay. have more choice, more agency. They see more of their interests reflected in the subjects that we're teaching them. And so even though eSpark is a 10 or 12-year-old company, um, we feel almost like it's, you know, it's it's day one again because our well, intent right now is to rebuild the whole thing in this playfully personalized way, so that kids can do what we're doing for Choice Text, but do it uh, across the entire curriculum. And we're really excited about that. I love it. Well, thank you for sharing all that, Eric. I would now like to drill you with some rapid fire questions if you're ready. I'm slightly terrified, but let's do it. <laughs> You know, if this was David Vinka, because back in the day, I traveled a lot with David, so I got to know him very well. He's He's been on the pad, podcast a few years ago. Now, for him, I would do some really cruel questions. But for you, since we're just meeting for the first time, I'm going to keep it PG and nice. Okay. The first set of, okay. The first set of questions are pretty quick, one, two word answer questions. And then the last five are a little bit more you can elaborate. Okay, here we go. Cats or dogs? Both, but we have a dog. Okay. <laughs> Love them both, though. Okay. Summer or winter? Summer. Mm -hmm. Morning or evening? Morning. Salty or sweet? Sweet. Do you watch TV one episode at a time, or do you binge whole seasons? Neither. I hate to say it, but these days I feel like... Uh, you know, 
the kids and I are spending all our time watching YouTube videos on <laughs> one topic after another. So not a whole lot of, uh, hey, that's pretty uh, honest. Classic. My answer program. would be to that. Like, I wish I could binge, but I fall asleep like within 15 yeah, minutes of everything I try to watch. Yeah. Um, okay. So you have to pick one of these physical strength or mental strength. Oh, mental strength for sure. Are you more of an introvert or an extrovert? I am like split right down the middle. It's very situationally appropriate. I think my nature is introvert, but for a whole host of reasons, I've kind of been forced to be competent in a more extroverted way. So I, I like to think I can go either direction. I don't think you can be a CEO and be like a total introvert. I think that would be too exhausting. <laughs> you have to learn how to be an extrovert, I think, when you're a CEO. So do you learn by watching or learn by doing? Both. Hmm, okay. Cannonball into the pool or dip a toe first? Oh, cannonball. <laughs> Me too. Would you rather sleep in late or take a long nap midday? Mm, neither. Yeah. I go to bed early. <laughs> <laughs> okay. What's something you were really, really good at as like a kid or a teenager? Well, this was a lifetime ago, and I want to be really clear that you know I'm not much of a golfer anymore. But uh, I played college golf at a at a Ooh. you know Division one school that you would have heard of, and used to be pretty good at golf. That's amazing. I um we like to golf as a family. We do a lot of best ball in our family because some of us are stronger at golf than others. So big respect for that. Golf is a hard game. Okay, what is now? This one usually stumps people. What's the most common food you order at a restaurant? Hmm. You go into a restaurant, like one of those restaurants that has every kind of food you could order. What's the most common thing? Like if I asked your wife, what would she say that she always hears you ordering? I don't, I don't know. And I also don't know what she would say. Um, I, I, this isn't a, 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 a chicken. I love that I stumped you. Like I'm, I'm thinking that? in terms of proteins, I, ch I think yeah. chicken of some sort, chicken in all varieties. I, 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 I am a carnivore and I think that uh, chicken is a, I, I mean, I, I know we all eat a lot of chicken, but uh, yeah. a lot of chicken dishes. That's that. It's funny because it makes me think of my husband. Like I make fun of him because everywhere we go, he gets a ch grilled chicken sandwich. <laughs> I don't even have to ask. Um, okay. Do you have a bucket list that's actually written down somewhere? I do not. Okay. What is one thing? You have two more questions. What is one thing you wish you enjoyed more? Well, you've got me on the sort of diet track because you asked me about meals at restaurants. Uh, I think I've always wished that I enjoyed vegetables more than I actually do because it would make it so much easier to eat healthy. So that's a pretty yeah. lame answer, but, but that is literally the first thing that comes to my mind. I wish I loved vegetables. I'm going to send you, I just bought a new vegetable seasoning. I'm going to send you a text, you a picture of it because it is making the vegetables go down in our house. So, All right. um, okay, final one. If given the chance, to start your life over, would you take it? I don't think so. Um, I, I don't think so. I've, I've, I, this has been a, I, I don't think so. 
I, this has been yeah. it's been a great ride. I've I've always been a sort of happy, optimistic kind of kind of guy. I don't I don't I don't think it would go much better than it's gone. So I, I don't think awesome. I'd do over. <laughs> well, and you I know what? No I'm complaints. Sure through the hard stuff, you being an optimistic, positive guy have probably done a good job getting through it. So um, I Eric, feel lucky and feel lucky in so many ways. Hard to imagine getting this lucky a second time in a row. Yeah. So I'll, I'll take my chances with the light. You'll stay guy. where you are. Well, Eric, thank you so much. It's just been fun to meet you. Like I said, I've heard so much about you. And uh, next time you're in Chicago, please let me know so that I can come and say hello in person. But thanks more importantly to being here today with teachers and educators and talking about how you really, I think, kept the legacy that David started, which is to help kids in their learning and be engaged learners and listen to teachers and build a really good product. So it's been a pleasure talking to you today and and thanks so much for joining us. Well, thanks so much for having me. It's an exciting time as we go back to school and, and sort of launch this new product. Um, we are just really excited to have people try it out and see what they think. So I appreciate you giving us a chance to, uh, to tell that story. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of the Educators to Educators podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. That helps others find the show, and we greatly appreciate it. Once again, thanks for listening, and we'll catch you in the next episode of the Educators to Educators podcast.